Today, around the United States at least, it is Compassion Sunday and churches are going to be pushing for their people to get involved in releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. And that's really what we see Compassion doing. And uh, several years ago, I was invited by Stadia, which for those of you that are new to the Highland Journey, Stadia is the organization that helped get this church planted. Um, it is a church planning movement in the United States, and they're looking to broaden the scope and be worldwide. And so they're in, they're, they, they themselves don't plant the church, but they look for the men and women qualified to be in that position to help start a new work. And so through Stadia, uh, they sent an invitation to myself and, and other pastors that are part of the Stadia uh, family and just saying, hey, would you guys be willing to come and check out a new partnership that is going to be going on with Stadia and Compassion. And Stadia, like I said, planting churches, Compassion has a, a thing that they, they follow where they, they don't go where there is no church. So you can see how this partnership would be a very beautiful thing in a church being established and then Compassion being able to come along and, and, and be a part of their child development centers in those churches. And so I went wearing three hats on this trip. I went to Ecuador wearing the pastor hat going... I need to see how these churches and these pastors and these planters live in, in the context of their city, what they're up against, the gospel, how does it translate, how do you bring this, this message to these people. I went as a sponsor, since uh, my wife and I roughly have, have been married, we've been sponsoring children through Compassion International, so I have questions, how does it work, does it work, is it legit, is it all these things, and I can tell you resoundingly, yes. Having seen how their offices work, how open they are with their books, everything that you, the letters you write, I've seen the, the mailroom that those letters arrive in and then they're taken out to, I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable process to watch. And I was also going as a photographer and videographer. They asked me to come and do this as well. So I got to see most of the trip behind a camera and experience a lot of the different things uh, that go on in this country. And so sitting in these rooms with these pastors who are explaining the layout of Ecuador, and I think a good pastor is one who understands the city that they're sitting in, the locations that they've been called to, and they described Ecuador in three different regions. They have the, the coastal area, which is probably the more liberal in thinking, a very high rate of sexual activity. They said that four out of ten women under the age of 18 are pregnant, and so they're trying to walk in a city, in a, in a, in a, in a place that does not put a high value on a lot of things, but they're just pieces and, and, and people that don't matter. There's no high value on life. And so as a pastor, how do you walk in that? They talked about the highlands of Ecuador, which are more the conservative uh, parts of the country where there's a more higher Catholic influence. But they say that because of the Catholic influence, there is a very upkeep appearance on the outside, but domestic violence is at an all-time high there. That's kind of how we do things if we're religious, right? We paint it up on the outside so everybody thinks we're looking good, but behind closed doors it can be a nightmare for people who are growing up in it. And so they also have the jungles part, the jungle parts of Ecuador, which is an incredible uh, tribal community of people where they're elder-led. And so to go in and be, begin relationships with the elders and begin to talk about the church and Jesus and God and His mission and all this different stuff, it's just this mix and then as we heard the pastors unfold more of their journey, they say the average church, seven out of ten churches in Ecuador currently have one pastor who's doing everything, and he works two full-time jobs. 
has no team, has no support, has nothing really to, to keep them going, but they keep doing it. No training, but knows that they love Jesus and they know they're supposed to be in these cities. And what's fascinating is their description of this <clears throat> is they talk about in the cities that they're ministering with gangs and drugs and no real moral compass, no value of human life. They said that, and this was in one of the pastoral meetings, they said the war is running on a Ferrari and the pastor is trying to keep up in a Volkswagen. And on top of this, the pastors feel this overwhelming, crushing weight to keep up family appearance that they can't keep up. They have this perfect picture that they feel they have to walk in and just listening to these pastors talk about this stuff and trying to figure out, okay, what, are, what translates into our culture and how do we live and the, 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 the stress and the hardships that they walk in and just going, God, please, you got to do something. What are you going to do in these cities in this country and through these people. So in a country with no health care, collapsing economies, family crushings, poor education, very little church influence, you could see why Stadia and their partnership with Compassion could be the answer to so many people's prayers. And when we were sitting um, in one of the villages that we went to, there was this small brick building, and I asked one of them, what, what, what is that? And they explained to me that it was the place where the Catholic priests would come once a year, offer the sacraments, they'd do a parade, and they would be forced to give an offering. Once a year. And I remember writing in my journal, this is unacceptable. Because I'm not saying that they weren't getting Jesus that one time a year, but most of them were not getting Jesus that one time of year. Most of them were hearing how they owe it to the church to give, let's uh, have a parade in honor of the church, not Jesus, but in honor of the church, and let's do this, and then we're gone, and you may or may not see us in a year. I remember being and feeling the weight of this is unacceptable, and one time a year, they may or may not have gotten the introduction of Jesus' pursuit of people. And I know it may be a strange place, but Psalm 119 is a, a place that I believe will, de, in my mind, defend the unacceptability of a once-a-year, maybe, Jesus introduction. And I hope that you'll stick with me in it. Psalm 119, and that's what we've talked about as a church is a fascinating 178 verses. I mean, we look at Psalm 119 and we're like, oh, that's a long chapter. But if you understand the beauty of Psalm 119 and the way that it was written, you'll see 22 sections, 8 verses. It's this beautiful acrostic. And I'm not a big acrostic poetic writer, but what was done with this psalm is liter literary genius. Because every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, there's 22, so Aleph, Beth, so you've got A. In translation, we lose it a little bit because not every verse begins with the same letter, but in Hebrew, it would have. So you'd have eight verses, all starting with the same letter for the reason of memorization. The ease of memorization in all of these things, that they, but it was also beautiful literature. So imagine being able to do that. I am not a poet, and I don't do that very well, but I can't imagine doing an acrostic that was an unbelievable, beautiful piece of literature, but also helping people memorize it. Good luck with making it sound awesome. 
But in this translation, yes, we may lose the ability to memorize it, but we don't lose the author's intent of the importance of Scripture. In fact, of the 176 verses in Psalm 119, 171 of them directly refer to Scripture. A love for His laws, a love for His commands, His decrees, His word. I mean, it's just non-stop. So we don't really need to question the author's intent and why he gave us these words. Now, as we're starting Psalm 119 for the next several weeks, sorry, um, with the intent of meditating on God's word, but also praying it with the psalmist. A couple of ideas. Maybe you read through Psalm 119 as many times as you can this month. Maybe. Maybe you just go, you know what, for the next four weeks, we're going to be hearing it, we're going to be studying it, we're going to be meditating on it together. Maybe I should just read it a bunch of times through. Maybe you commit it to memory. Maybe you get note cards. I know some of you, this might be a stretch. And you write it down. And you just write one verse, two verses, a couple verses maybe. Or maybe those of you who are addicted to your phones, you grab the verses app. And I put a screenshot up there for you, but it's just called verses. And what it does is it gives you games. To help you memorize scripture. (laughs) Games. Like ordering the words, typing the verse out. And for those of you who love to be graded, it'll let you know if you passed or failed. You'll get a green or a red when you mess up. All right? And I had Zeke last week sitting across from me going through Ephesians. They had just been talking about Ephesians. And he was like, ooh, I got it. Nailed it. I have that verse memorized. I was like, well, add the next verse to it. Oh, man. You know, and so you got to start again. But it's called the Verses app, and I don't know if it's for, you know, Android phones, um, but go for it. It's a way to engage with the Word of God and memorize it. What if you prayed eight verses a day? What if you took one of those 22 chunks and just made it a prayer, morning, noon, and night? What if you started asking God to stir the things that the psalmist was asking to be stirred in? I believe God will answer you. What if you hand-copied Psalm 119? I love getting a new journal and starting a new chapter of the Bible and hand-copying it in my own handwriting. So my favorite practices on how to meditate on the Word of God, maybe you just need to get one of those 25-cent science experiment books from whatever store you go to and start hand-copying Psalm 119. And then maybe start underlining things and circling things. If you don't like to mark in your Bible, mark it because you've handwritten it. What if you found a creative way to illustrate Psalm 119? Some of you have been blessed with a pencil and a pen and a brush or a camera, and you have been gifted at communicating through the arts. What if you found a creative way to illustrate Psalm 119? It's meditating on the Word of God. It's getting out of ruts, it's getting out of routines, and it's allowing him to stir us and give us a new affection for his word, because you will see that coming out in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, starting in verse 1, says this, Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. 
Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. The psalmist explains what happy people really look like, what joyful people really look like. Jesus says these same things as he opens the Sermon on the Mount in his Beatitudes. Joyful people are people of integrity. That word there is blameless and whole. Now, I don't know if you've ever known somebody who wears 15 masks and they're 15 different people with 15 different people and they have all of these faces that they carry and they try to be someone with somebody different group. They're miserable. They are miserable people to be around. It is a lot of hard work to keep up 15 identities. Did you know that? It is a lot of hard work to pretend to be someone here and then to be someone over here. Joyful are people who are whole because they've taken God at his word and we are who he says we are and not somebody else that I have to pretend to be. But he also says joyful are those who walk in his way, blameless in his way. Now, for some of us, and this is what most Christians do in the United States because we do think we're smarter than everyone else. It's kind of how we roll. We take the portions of God's word that we like And we put those into practice, and then the portions that we don't like, we just kind of toss to the side. What the psalmist is saying is, I'm not taking portions of your word. I want the whole thing. I want it to sway me. I want it to shape me. I want it to call me. I want it to be the thing that I look at as breath and life and food. These are all things that we need to live. And so the psalmist's desperate cry is, if I don't get this, I'm dying. If I don't get this, I'm done. Joyful are these kinds of people. Psalmist says, joyful are those who search for God with all their heart. And as you look at Psalm 119, you're going to see a lot of, I want to put this into practice. I want to do these things. I want to obey these laws. I want to obey these decrees. I want to do this. But it was never meant to be attached from our hearts. The invitation in the Old Testament and the New was a heart handed to the Lord. It was never meant to be this cold, rote routine where I go through the motions so now that I can get my blessing and I can move on. But it was meant to be our hearts were to be engaged with us trying to walk in His commands. He says, joyful are those who put into practice and seek the Lord with all their hearts. You know, it's interesting because as we put into practice His commands, we find ourselves seeking Him, but we also find that we are figuring out how to love God. Working with middle school students is one of my favorite things in the world because they ask the most honest questions. They don't care who's in the room. And early, early on, I've probably been working with students for maybe one or two years, and I had a kid who I could tell was wrestling, but he really wanted to honor the Lord. He really wanted to know God. He really wanted to know Jesus. But the biggest roadblock, in his opinion, to knowing Jesus was, how can I throw a bear hug around Jesus when I can't see him? That was his question. Like, ultimately, he was saying, how do I put my arms around someone I can't see? 
That question right there is one of the most amazing questions I've ever been asked, and it was asked by a sixth grader. And I'm sitting here going, Lord, I need some answers. Help me, because I've only been doing this for like, I don't, I'm not qualified. This is like theology. And thankfully, God's word did not return void in that moment. And John 14, 15 says this. Jesus says it. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, you're going to do what I say. Where there is no love, there'll be no obedience. And so in effect, what I, what, with the, this kid was going, I can seriously throw my arms around Jesus, crush him with a bear hug by doing what he says? Absolutely. Done. Because the kid had an understanding of all that Jesus had done. He just didn't know how to give that love back. So question for you. If there is no joy or happiness in your life, where are you on these things? Still fighting God on these things? Still trying to tell God what's going to bring you the most joy, most happiness? Are you still thinking joy and happiness will come through something or someone? What if God has designed us to know Him, His Word, and the joy that comes from that? What if we're the stiff-necked people who need to know how to do that? What do we do with these things? God has actually invited us to carefully keep his word in the psalm. You'll see that over and over and over. And this is not a glance over, okay? This is not taking one verse, chicken soup for my soul, yay, and then moving on. You know, it's funny to me. We will study contracts that will ask of us great things. You know, but, 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 but maybe it's not a contract that's super great. Like, you know that agreement, the terms of agreement that you click agree on for like iTunes? And, and you're just like, you don't even read that, do you? You just go, agree, 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 give me music, I want, I want, give me, put it on my computer. What? You're going to take my fifth born? I don't care. Give me, give me, give me, agree, 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 I don't care. That's the society we live in. We're like, I'm not going to read all the way through something. But, but God's actually saying, you know what? I want you to carefully comb over my words. This is not just a reading. I think they call that the Doppler effect in science. Is that right? Kind of? Kind of? Kind of? Okay, good. Jim is nodding yes. When I have a science question, Jim. All right. But that's how we read scripture, right? God's actually saying, you know what? Stop doing that and carefully take a look at who I am and what I've said. You know, we asked this question at Fight Club last week to the middle school and high school students. What if everything we're reading and declaring and singing is true? Like, typically, we like to ask you from the other side, what if it's not true? Well, then I haven't wasted my life, and I've done good things, and I've lived life good. But what if it's true? Like, what if everything we just sang is true? Ain't no grave going to hold me down. What if everything we've talked about is true? From Genesis to Revelation, that God's desire for us is to be with us, and when it happens, it's going to be good. What if it's true? Like, I just sometimes I think we kind of go, I don't know, I don't know. And we live in this, I don't know. But what if we lived as if this was true? What if we lived knowing that God pursued us even though we hated him and ultimately gave him the middle finger and walked away? And he still didn't give up on us. 
What if we lived as if that was true? This is where the psalmist is saying, carefully consider his words. Carefully look at his words. And in verse 5 of 119, you can feel this. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. There is a difference between being someone who studies God's word and someone who treasures God's word. Like, I know a lot of people who study it, but they don't treasure it. I know a lot of people who treasure it, and because they treasure it, they want to study it. They want to know what these words mean and the context of what's going on and historically what was happening and why is it important that we, we talk about Passover and what was symbolic in the Old Testament that points to Jesus in the New. They want to know all these things because they treasure God's word. And then we understand the psalmist's echo of, I just, I want to consistently reflect you. I don't just want to chew on your word, debate your word, discuss your word, memorize your word, think about your word, write, post a a cool picture of your word on Facebook or Twitter. I want to reflect your word. There's something in the life of a believer that goes, I want to reflect him and I fail at it. And the psalmist captures that for us. Oh, that I would consistently, we relate to oh. We relate to that word. Oh, man, I want to do that so badly. And he's seeing that we don't get it yet and that we fall short. And because we have Christ as a New Testament gathering of believers, we have to understand that Christ covers us. And so when we look at the Psalms, we're going to go, oh, man, that's a weighty thing. That's heavy. That's difficult. And that's, that's law and everything. But we have to understand that in Christ, when I put my faith and trust in what Christ has done, something happens. Something comes to life. We are covered with his righteousness over our unrighteousness. We are gifted something in Christ that causes, verses 6 and 7, then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. There is a weight that comes when you look at God's word and you go, I don't measure up to that. There is a weight to the law. The law was meant to show us that we don't measure up to his ways. We were meant to be crushed by it so that we would be brought to life by faith in Christ so that none of us can boast. You and I can't talk about, well, I kept seven of the Ten Commandments, suckers. I only kept four, I'm done. See, we're so arrogant and so prideful we will actually line ourselves up next to Scripture and go, got that one, got that one, don't got that one, so I'm good. I mean, it's not as bad as that guy. He doesn't got that one, and that's terrible. We will do that. And so in Christ, we see something different. And at Christ's coverings, in Psalm 119.7, as I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. My life becomes a thank you card for all that he has already done in Christ. Psalm 119.8 is probably one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture because I get it. I think you'll resonate with it. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Like in one, in one out of this side of his mouth, he said, I'm going to do it. On this side, I can't do it. 
That's what's happening. I'm going to do it, Lord. I'm going to obey everything you say to do. I didn't do it. Don't give up on me. (sighs) Like we get that. We feel that. We understand when we go, I long to long for what God longs for, but I find myself longing for what my flesh wants for. I want to love like you, God, and I want to love the things you love, but I love the flesh stuff too. We feel the, please don't give up on me. Please don't stop working on me. Please don't stop pursuing me because I am in need of what you can do in my heart. And as his people, maybe you've never made that cry out loud. Maybe you've never said, don't give up on me, God, out loud. But the way we see the evidence that God has not given up on us that he has a never-ending, always pursuing, always chasing after love is by looking at Christ. The way we know that he's not done with us is by looking at Jesus. See, for some of you in this room, you've grown up in the church. You have walked in this religious vein of life, and you have heard every Bible story there is to hear, and you have listened to every sermon podcast that there is to hear, and you have studied the scriptures. You've got a systematic theology in the trunk of your car, ready to pull it out at any moment, but you feel God's done with me. I have learned all I need to learn. I have everything on lock. This good behavior thing, I got it down. And you know what? I'm, God's so done with me, I don't have any more prayer requests. But then there may be another camp of you who stand over here who say, I continue to struggle with the same habits I've had since I was 16 years old. I've struggled with the same habits. I can't not click on that internet site. I can't not explode in anger. I can't not get frustrated. I can't not help hoard my money. I'm not generous. I'm greedy. I'm selfish. I'm X, Y, and Z. God, you've probably given up on me by now. I'm none of these things that I should be, so you've probably given up on me. I'm needy, I'm clingy, I need, I need you more and more and more, but I bet there's probably better people worth investing in, and you're done with me. Friend, the answer to both the religious person who thinks God's done with them because they've got it, and the answer to the one who believes they can't come to God because they're done and he's done with them is looking at Christ. When a religious Pharisee looks at Jesus and goes, oh, the outside is what matters most, Jesus goes, it's the heart, dude. Your heart is gross. Inside, bones. Clean on the outside, death on the inside. For the sinner, when we look at Jesus and recognize all that he did on my behalf and that he has done this and accomplished it because it brought him great joy to bring me into the presence of God and he marked me with his righteousness and he gave me everything I need, he's not done with me. He's not finished. And so we stand in this place, the answer is the same, it's Jesus. And if I'm not looking at Jesus, I'm going to think he's done, whether I'm religious or I'm a sinner. It's when I see that Jesus is 
this full expression of the Word of God. And not just did he display the Word of God, he accomplished the Word of God. See, we talk about Jesus and we talk about his death, we talk about his resurrection, but do you know that the Christ follower must celebrate the life of Christ? Because if the life of Christ doesn't happen, the death and the resurrection doesn't matter. The life of Christ is that Jesus, he didn't say out loud, please don't give up on me. Because he did God's word perfect. Do you know that he lived God's word without sin? Never once did he not have a love and affection for the word of God. Never once did he fail to obey it. He lived it perfectly. So when I, by faith, put my trust in Christ, do you know what happens? I am not, it's not as if just I've never sinned, but it's as if I've always obeyed. It's as if I live God's law perfectly, but Jesus did it, not me. That's why my life is a thank you card to him. (laughs) Thank you for covering me with a righteousness that's not my own, and you made it possible to know you, and you did not give up on me. Now why, why would this be? Why would a small brick building where a Catholic priest visit once a year be unacceptable? I can tell you why. And why is the, the work of Stadia and Compassion's partnership so valuable and so important? I can tell you why. It's because God's not done with the people of Ecuador. How do I know that? Jesus. How do I know that he's not finished pursuing people, not just in Ecuador, but in this city? It's because of Jesus. How can I know that he's not done at work in me? It's because every time I see Jesus and I meet with Jesus, I'm like, oh, that is unreal. Your mercy, your grace, your compassion, you're chasing after me when I'm running after stupid, shiny things. Thank you. You're not done with me. You know, as I went from place to place visiting Ecuador, I was continually struck at the lengths God was going to to pursue people. And in some cases, he was knocking on their door. When we were in uh, Ecuador, we met with a church planning couple. And the wife's name was Rosita, and she told story after story. Uh, And her and her husband at the time had been responsible for planting over 60 churches in Ecuador. And she would go on scouting trips to places that had no church interaction, no gospel interaction. She would be the first contact, if you will. And she would go and she would tell people that she was coming to hug them in the name of the highest authority in the land. Beautiful stories, but she came back from one trip in particular where there was no church, no gospel presence, nothing but people who did not know about the pursuit of God. And her declaration to her husband was, I have just come from a beautiful place where God is going to be glorified. And it was in that moment I just sat down and was like, God, how far away am I from that? How far away am I from believing that you are going to be glorified and this is a beautiful place that your story is going to be told, your fame is going to be declared among the nations because you're not done with Asheville. You're not done with Ecuador. She told another story of a man named Roberto. And she went into this one, it was in this one village, and Roberto was a drunk leader of the village, if you will, and was consistently being a, a, a troublesome person in the, there trying to establish the church. 
and the church did get established. And there was one Sunday in particular, Rosita had gotten up and she was about to, to speak the message that morning. And it happened to be on the one that the shepherd would leave the 99 for. And she looked into the, the group of people and she did not see Roberto. Just looked, just looked, just looked, and she left. <laughs> she left that morning and left the people kind of going, huh? And she went to find Roberto. Roberto was drunk somewhere and she drug him into the church, sat him down in the front row. She did this a number of times, more times than he probably cared for. And through the translator, it was hilarious because I'm going to do it injustice, but through the translator, she said, to the, she said about Roberto, she began to pray for him. And the, the translator, you could tell, was a little uncomfortable saying it. She said, she began to pray for him. Jesus, you either kill him or save him. And the crazy part of that story was Roberto was sitting in that room with us as a pastor being trained to share the gospel. I mean, that's the stuff where you sit there and go, he's not done with people. He's continuing to pursue people. One church planner we had talked with said that his mentor asked him one day to get into the car and go on a ride with him. And as he went on the ride with him, they started leaving the things that were familiar, and they ended up in another town. And his mentor told him to get out of the car, and this was the city he was going to plant the church in, shut the door, and drove off. There is a thriving church in that community now. God's not done with his people. And as the church is being established in some villages, compassion is coming alongside, even as the building is being built. And so as we saw steel beams and concrete and sand, where there was no gathering yet, compassion was sending these women into the villages who would knock on the doors. And we went with some of them, knocked on the doors, and said, do you have any children in your home? If you have any children in your home, what are your needs? They were going to the front door, not even asking for anyone to come to anything yet, but compassion was reaching these families through the children. And what they would do is they would take these women who had zero to three-year-old, they have a child survival program through Compassion, that if for $25,000 a year you can sponsor 50 women and the children, and it provides for them an incredible amount of child care, of education. Like they were showing these moms who had no clue that the development, the portion of moving your kids' arms and legs, and there were moms who were having trouble with the breastfeeding things, feeling like failures. And one of the most powerful moments in, when we were there was when one of the workers just took this mom aside who felt like a terrible mother and said, you are an incredible mother. And the tears that began to flow down this woman's face, even though she's on another side of the planet struggling with the same things mothers in this country are struggling with, but having no one to share these things with. She heard, you are an incredible mother, and you are making a difference in the life of your children, and we're here to help you do that. And they would change out toys so that the kids wouldn't get bored. Every, every month or so, they would come around with a new set of toys for the kids and that the, the moms didn't have to buy, and they would give them the instruction for medical clinics and things that they needed, and, play, and, and all of this stuff is covered in the child survival program from the zero to three. The things we take for granted need to be funded there. And then there's the most popular portion of what Compassion does, and that's those packets back there. 
the 3 to 18 year range, where these kids who, whether or not they have school before or after school, can show up at these child development programs, they can hear the gospel, they can be loved, encouraged, prayed for, get a meal. And here's the staggering statistic. In the year I went to Ecuador, Compassion International saw 138,000 children come to know Christ. Huge statistic. The more staggering statistic to me was that average Compassion International child's sphere of influence is 11 people. You start doing that math and see how quickly the gospel advances. As a family is impacted by what compassion does for this child, as a community is impacted as what compassion does for this child, you start doing the math and you tell me how quickly the gospel advances. As the band comes this morning and we close our time, why does Ecuador matter? Why does compassion matter? Why is what Stadia does so important? Is because it declares to a whole bunch of people God is not done with them. He has not given up on them. He is pursuing them with the love of Christ. He is pursuing them with, with all his resources. And we can become so stubborn here in the United States. Because here's the deal, guys. If I can make the declaration, God, please don't give up on me. How dare I forget about others? It's that simple. So this morning, we are going to take a second offering that is going straight to the Ecuador Earthquake Relief Fund. Stadia has a system set up in place. Highland is already prepared to give towards that. But if you would like to give on top of that, we're going to pass the baskets again, and you're going to have an opportunity to give. But there are two ways that Stadia and Compassion have said that you can help. And one of those is those packets back there. Every one of those packets is a child from Ecuador. They are priority. Part of the way the earthquake relief funding can happen is through compassion, and they're extending grace into the communities, finding ways to bring water back, finding ways to get electricity turned back on, homes needing to be rebuilt. Compassion is already established to help make those things happen. So if you're like, I didn't come prepared today, $38 a month. But I don't have $38 a month. Find a friend. But we don't have $38 a month. Find another friend. But we don't have $38. Find another friend. Stop making excuses and make disciples. That's what we're invited to do. And I believe that in this country, we have an opportunity to do all those things. I think we're good at excuses. But as we begin to pray together and go, Lord, please don't give up on me. I hope it changes your heart to understand he hasn't given up. On people. He hasn't given up on those that you consider the farthest away. He's right there. And so as you guys come, you can pass those baskets. Rosita said, as we close our time, Rosita said that it was in the pursuit of, good, of God that people were seeing his faithfulness and his goodness towards them. And I want you to see this quote that she, I had to write it word for word, but she said very simply, I took all the idols out of the village, and no one has asked for them back. I still have them in a box. You see, when somebody hears of the faithfulness and the goodness of God in Christ Jesus, it causes us to want to leave, leave our idols in the box. 
It causes us to want to respond to the goodness of God. It causes us to want to pursue his words, his decrees, his laws. And we understand, oh, please do not give up on me. And the way we know he hasn't, Jesus. The way we know he hasn't given up on Ecuador or those kids represented on that table, Jesus. He is actively pursuing people. And it's awesome to watch. So this morning as the band plays, we're going to do our response time a little differently. You can stand, you can sit, but there are two prayers I'd love for you to pray this morning. The first one is, thank you for not giving up on me. I don't know if you've ever said those words out loud to God, but sometimes it's good to say them. (laughs) Sometimes it's good to say, thank you for not giving up on me. Secondly, give me a desire for your word. That is a dangerous prayer to pray because he will give it to you. So I believe that as Christ followers to stand in thanksgiving and to have our desires and our affections stirred for what God longs for are very good things to pray. And so feel free to use this time to respond and to pray those prayers. But don't, don't be stiff-necked. Let his word shape our hearts as a church. Father, thank you for loving us, and I ask that in these moments, we would be a people who just, we recognize that Christ, you didn't give up on us, so don't let us give up on others. And when we feel that you have given up on us, we will look at Christ and be reminded over and over that you're not done with us. You're continuing to shape us into your image. Thank you for that gift. Give us a desire for your word. It's in your name we pray.